Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Happy non-games year. Oh my goodness. Happy New Year. I thought of that yesterday as I was working on the calendar and getting things into our calendar, getting things into my calendar. And I said, this is the first time in three years where six weeks of my life is not automatically (laughs) blocked off. Because in 2020, we were ready. Mm -hmm. And then they changed their minds. And of course, 2021 was Tokyo. And then 2022 was Beijing. And now I'm kind of like, what do I do with myself? And I say to myself, you actually get yourself ready for Paris 2024. in an appropriate rather than breakneck speed. That would be nice, right? (laughs) Sounds exciting. But we're not getting ready for Paris 2024 today. We're actually going backwards. That's right. As we like to do at the beginning of the year, we like to kick off our historical moment every year. This is year number three we have done this. We choose one games to focus on, and we have a little history moment where we share a story from that games to help you remember those great days. Because really, you remember everything so vividly while it happens. And then six months or a year or four years later, you're Some of these stories are really tough to remember, and it's fun revisiting some of the amazing moments that the games can provide. So you all chose Seoul 1988, as it is the 35th anniversary of those games. I did the math. No, you're right. Your math is right. Okay, excellent. 35th anniversary of those games. And to kick things off, we talked with Bill Mallon. Bill is the co-founder of the International Society of Olympic Historians, also known as ISOH. That is an organization dedicated to promoting and studying the Olympic movement and the Olympic Games. Bill served as president of the ISOH and continues to serve on its executive committee. He is also an orthopedic surgeon and former professional golfer. If you like Olymp Media, the website, Bill is one of the people behind that. So to get us started on our historic Olympics for this year, we spoke with Bill about the Summer Games in Seoul 1988. Take a listen. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. We are excited to have you to kick off our year of celebrating Seoul 1988. Let's start a little bit about how those games came to be. So when when Seoul won the bid, that was 1981, and the, the whole movement was in a totally different place then. You're right, September 1981. It was seven years ahead of time. The, the biggest difference between when they were selected and when the games went off was South Korea was more of a dictatorship when it was selected in 81. And they sort of changed governments over the next few years. And in addition, there was a lot of negotiation between 1982 and through 1987 with the North Koreans who sort of wanted to host some of the events. 
Well, obviously, they didn't get to host some of those events. How did that work out? Were people in favor of that? Because reunification must have been some of the talk of the day, right? Yeah, I'm not sure reunification's the talk of the day even today. When I was in Pyeongchang in 2022, I kind of did a dual role there because I I spent some time in my day job as an orthopedic surgeon with some of my Korean colleagues. And I asked them about that, and they're not really all that in favor of reunification with North Korea for a number of reasons. And it certainly wasn't on the table in 88. I think the IOC really wanted to send out an olive branch to the North Koreans to allow them to host a couple events. And the negotiations were done to a great extent by Dick Pound, the very prominent Canadian IOC member. And and Dick uh, later wrote a book about it called Five Rings Over Korea that really um, talked about the negotiations in detail. And it never came to be because no matter what they offered, the North Koreans would say, we want more, we want more. And of course, the South Koreans and the Seoul Organizing Committee was pushing back against that because they didn't want to really give up, you know, a lot of the games to the North Koreans. So it, it just never came to pass. None of the events were held on the North side. So in 1981, when the games were awarded, you're coming off the financial disaster of Montreal 76, the boycott of 1980, and they award them to South Korea. What what was the IOC's mood when it didn't have that many choices, only two cities even bid for 88? Yeah, the the other option was Nagoya, Japan, that bid against them. And I, I don't really know. I've, I've never been to Nagoya, but I've been to about five different cities in Japan, but that's not one of them. I, I It's not high up on my list when I think of the prominent Japanese cities. And I think that was part of the reason the IOC wasn't really in favor of it. It's certainly not Tokyo. Uh, it's not Osaka, you know, Kyoto or anything like that. So I think they were sort of as... Occasionally they are and have been left with two choices that weren't ideal for them, sort of like Sochi in 2014, where they didn't really have a great choice either. So they they selected Seoul. I mean, it's a capital of a a country that was part of the Pacific Rim and emerging economies, and it was becoming prominent, just like Japan had in the late 60s and 70s, become very prominent on the world stage. So I think they wanted to send the games there. I, I think they also, they had not had a Asian Summer Olympics since it, since 1964 at Tokyo. That was the only other one at that time. So I think they were reaching out to have an Asian Games. Were there concerns about athlete safety from, say, North Korea going into Seoul when, the, when that first award happened? Well, I think there's always concerns about athlete safety. You know, I've been to 14 Olympics now, and I always worry a little bit about just my own safety. But, you know, the, if you've been to Olympics anymore, security is so high. I mean, you know, we always worry about something happening again, like uh, Munich 72 or even the the bombing that occurred in Atlanta in 96. But, geez, when you, when you see the security, you'd have to pull off some amazing feats, I think, to create a disaster scenario like that again. So it's always discussed. And, you know, the fact that Seoul, not not only is Seoul in South Korea, it's fairly close to North Korea. It's up on the, I don't know the mileage or the kilometerage, if that's even a word, but, you know, I I know when I looked at the maps and 
also in, in Pyeongchang, I didn't go because I had a little health issue there, but some of the U.S. Olympic Committee people, as the games ended, actually went up to the demilitarized zone and actually, you know, got to look across to uh, North Korea. So it's, it's very close to Seoul. You mentioned earlier the South Korean government was more of a dictatorship. What was the mood when the games were awarded in the country itself? You know, you're, you're pushing my memory here a little bit now, but in general, when a country is chosen as an Olympic host, there's usually euphoria in the country. They usually are pretty excited about it. In most cases, the United States and Canada may be different because we're so pragmatic about the expenses and the difficulty in hosting an Olympic Games. But in the rest of the world, you know, the Olympic Games are one of the two major sporting events that occur, along with what's going on right now, FIFA's World Cup. For us in the U.S., it's the NFL and the Super Bowl are by far the most prominent sports and sporting event, but the rest of the world didn't even know about the Super Bowl, really. So certainly there was euphoria in South Korea. In terms of the planning and, and getting the games ready, how was Korea as a host? I think Korea did a great job. I was not there. That's one of the last games I haven't been to. At that time, I was a, a resident in orthopedic surgery. And it was kind of hard as a resident in orthopedic surgery to say, I want two weeks off to go to the Olympic Games. But I, I never heard any complaints from anyone that was there. And as far as I, I know, um, it was well handled. The IOC was happy with what happened there, except for the Ben Johnson incident, of course. But otherwise, I, I, I think they did, did a very good job. We're, we're going to get to Ben Johnson. <laughs> I figured you might. So... Over the years of planning, we get there, it opens, it starts, things are okay. We've got new sports, we've got a lot of great stories. So let's start, instead of starting with the, the bad Ben Johnsons, let's start with some of the the better things, the happier things. What are the big stories that, you know, as we're talking about it over the next year, should we not miss? <laughs> That's a tough question. You know, they had a, a few new events and... One thing that was going on was that women were becoming more prominent. They, they hadn't equalized the program, but women were allowed to do more and more sports than they had before. And it, it was also the next to last games at which they did demonstration sports. And they had three demonstration sports that ended up becoming on the Olympic program over the next few Olympics, badminton, baseball, and taekwondo. The IOC basically eliminated demonstration sports after the 1992 Olympics. Tennis was there for the first time since 1924. It had been a demonstration sport in 1984. Table tennis was now a sport, a big sport for the Asian athletes, especially China. You know, they dominate that sport. And rhythmic gymnastics and what was then called synchronized swimming were on the program for the second time. They both had been held in 1984, but they were there now for the first time. For our listeners who are more new to the movement, explain what a demonstration sport was and how it compared to a sport on the program in terms of medals and counting and towards medal totals and all of that. Sure. Demonstration sports were non-medal sports. They didn't actually receive the same Olympic medals as someone in track and field or gymnastics or swimming or the primary sports on the program. They were basically what the term says. They were there to demonstrate the sport as a possible Olympic sport for the future. The organizing committees and, and the demonstration sports first started appearing around 1920. 
And the organizing committees were usually allowed to choose two sports at the Olympics. One that, and these were suggestions, these weren't hard and fast rules. One was a sport that was sort of indigenous to that country, which is how Taekwondo became a demonstration sport in 88, because it's, it's sort of the, the main Korean martial art. And the other one was supposed to be a sport that was more internationally known, but was sort of on the verge of coming onto the Olympic program or that the IOC was considering for the Olympic program. The athletes, again, do not receive the same medals as the athletes in the regular Olympic program do. There's even some question about whether these athletes should be called Olympians that participate in demonstration sports. There's a, a big, I wouldn't say fiasco, but a big discussion in Olympic circles, which I'm sort of a part of in the U.S., to try to define who is an Olympian in terms of if you actually competed or if you were a goalie on the football or soccer team and you sat on the bench, you never got into a game. Is that person an Olympian? You know, rowing has alternates. They always take a few alternates. Is that person an Olympian? And that same question comes up with the demonstration sports. Are those athletes considered Olympians? We're still discussing it. Don't ask me what the answer is because I, I can't tell you. What did they get if they won, if they didn't get a traditional Olympic medal? They receive a participation medal. And I think they received some type of medal different than the regular medal if they had finished in the top three. And the other thing that they do, did receive were diplomas. It's not very well known, but in the Olympics, you win a gold for first place, silver for second, bronze for third place. The fourth through eighth, eighth place finishers also received diplomas from the IOC. Actually, the first through eighth place, the gold, silver, and bronze medalists also get a diploma. And I, I believe that the demonstration sport athletes also received diplomas for their finishes. It's interesting because we always think of demonstration sports as kind of the entree, but didn't realize that they had kind of a second class citizenship within the games in a sense. Yeah. Again, I, I don't know if you count them as Olympians or not. The IOC about two years ago under President Thomas Bach instituted this new rule or something like that in which, you know, for an example, you know, I'm a, I'm a orthopedic surgeon. And so after my name, I have MD after my name. Well, the, the IOC has instituted this new rule that Olympic athletes can put O-L-Y after their name, like a physician or like a PhD or something like that. And that's why this, what's the definition of an Olympian has come up because one, someone who's an Olympian sort of wants to show that off with the O-L-Y. And two, especially in other countries, especially Eastern Europe, Olympians, people considered Olympians, get some financial rewards from the country, both in terms of, you know, monetary awards if they win medals, but also they can get increased pensions and things like that. So being able to say you're an Olympian is a big thing in a lot of other countries. So trying to get that definition right is tricky and we're, we're working on it. It is kind of interesting because what if you are one of these taekwondo athletes from 1988 and you've been getting an olympians pension and then all of a sudden that gets re the classification gets reworked and you're not pension eligible anymore i guess yeah there was a a very sad thing i think it was in 2014 in sochi there was an american freestyle skier and i forget her name unfortunately who tore her acl her anterior cruciate ligament in training like the day before the olympics so when she 
or the day before her event was going to start. And they, they showed a film of her and she's crying both because of the pain of the injury. But I remember she sort of cried out plaintively, am I still an Olympian? You know, because it means a great deal to someone to say I was an Olympic athlete. And, you know, I can tell you that people who say they're an Olympic athlete and really weren't are not very well thought of by Olympic athletes. What kinds of things did Seoul end up with because of the Olympics? Well, Seoul upgraded its airport. It also built what they call in China and Korea, they enlarged their ring roads, which we call beltways. They did that. And of course, they built a bunch of stadia. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, is another argument entirely. I personally think that you shouldn't give an Olympics to a city that has to build all sorts of stadiums to hold it. If they don't have the stadiums to begin with, they shouldn't get them awarded. But the other thing that Seoul did was, you know, to North America, I bet half of North America couldn't tell you where Seoul, Korea was before the 1988 Olympics. It puts the city on the international map for two to almost three weeks, you know, in a prominent position in North American television and then television around the world. Okay, so let's talk about the not-so-great stories, the most famous being Ben Johnson, which I'm sure we're going to get into as we do our bits, but let's set the stage for that rather unfortunate situation. Well, Ben Johnson was a Canadian sprinter who had won the world championships in 1987 in the 100 meters and was considered the best sprinter in the world. He'd sort of taken over for Carl Lewis, who was still the best long jumper in the world, but Lewis in the last year or so had not been able to beat Ben Johnson. And in the 100 meter final in Seoul, Johnson won with Lewis finishing second. And Johnson broke the world record. I think he ran 969. I'd have to go look that one up. But, but he did set a world record and beat Lewis pretty handily. A- anyone who looked at Ben Johnson in that era had to be a little suspicious because he, he looked like kind of a combination of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno for a sprinter. Uh, he was very muscular. He also, from a physician's point of view, he, he also always looked jaundiced to me. His eyes were yellow. Um, which can be a sign of liver problems, which is a known complication of steroid use. And, you know, Johnson was hailed as the great sprinter. He defeated the fabled Carl Lewis, who'd won four gold medals in 84. Unfortunately, the next day, or actually it was in the middle of the night, it became fairly well known and was released that Lewis had tested positive for anabolic steroids, which everybody thought he was using anyway. He was on a a drug called stenozolol, which is a fairly well-known anabolic steroid. And he was disqualified, and Lewis was advanced eventually to the gold medal. And it was a big black eye for the IOC that this guy had been lionized as the great sprinter, and Canada had embraced him, and now he he was disqualified. It later turned out the 100-meter final in Seoul besides Ben Johnson has been called the dirtiest race of all time. Although there's, I think the 2012 women's 1500 meters may rival it because every person in the final at one time or another in his career was either caught for doping or was suspected of doping. Now, Now doping and penalties for doping and the way they were tested for were very different in 1988 than they are now. Back then, about the only time you got tested was at the Olympics or at a major sporting event. Now, athletes get tested 
or are may be tested 24 7 365 even out of competition when they're in training back then you could take whatever you want in training and some people said it, it wasn't a doping test it was an iq test because as long as you were smart enough to stop taking things shortly before the competition you couldn't really fail the doping test because the the stuff would clear out of your system by the time the game started but almost everyone in that final at some time or another ran afoul of or was suspected of running afoul of doping problems but yeah it was the big black mark you know again going back to dick pound the canadian ioc member he was the one that really was in charge that night of going to uh johnson and you know telling him this was positive and going to the canadian team and you know, it was hard on him dick was a canadian and there is a canadian and it was a big win for canada they they loved it especially you know beating carl lewis and americans and stuff like that but yeah this was not the high point of the seoul olympics and it was a real turning point in doping and testing and just that relationship with olympic sport yeah absolutely it was um canada did a thing called the dubin inquiry dubin was a judge in canada who presided over it and to look into doping in canadian athletics and Johnson later admitted in that inquiry that he had been on steroids long term. And that and a couple other things that happened in professional cycling in the 90s were really the impetus to form WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, that tests or is in charge of setting the standards for testing and overseeing testing at major sporting events. And that really was, and when WADA came into being, that was when they really changed the way they tested from only at major sporting events to testing unannounced 24-7, 365. So anybody could be tested at any time if you were considered a, a national level athlete. Right, because even if you stop the steroids in time for them to be out of your system for competition, isn't there residual effect that you've built up muscle, say, that you wouldn't have been able to build up otherwise? Yes. And some people say it almost doesn't matter when you stopped or how far out from the last time you took the drugs were that you oh, you will always have an advantage gained because you were able to use the drugs for a number of years or at least months and gain that advantage. And as an example, I, I remember a, a friend of mine I, I, I met back in the early 70s and I hadn't known him very long, but he was really a muscular guy. And I, I asked him one time, did, did you ever you know, do a lot of weightlifting? And he said, you know, I only weightlifted when I was like 16, 17 and 18 years old. Well, that's when men go through puberty. And that's when we have the testosterone rush, which builds muscles and strength and also builds a few other things too. And uh, so when he was lifting at that time, basically he was sort of on steroids because he was lifting while, and, and he was left with that that body and that build for a lifetime because you know he'd done this at exactly the right time to get big and muscular. It, it doesn't really go away for a long time. Another low point on these games was the boxing tournament. What can you tell us about that? Well, the, the biggest thing there was a guy named Roy Jones, who became one of the greatest boxers of all time. After he turned professional, he became a world champion in eight different weight classes. So Roy Jones was fighting as a light middleweight in Seoul. And uh, even though he wasn't professional, he was still a great boxer. And he went to the finals and he fought a Korean boxer named Park Si-hyun, and he pummeled the guy. I mean, he just, everyone in the world thought 
this was Roy Jones won the gold medal and the judges gave it to the Korean boxer. And so Jones had to accept the silver medal, even though they had a computer punch count and Jones out punched Park 86 to 30. So it wasn't really even close. So it's considered the worst decision in Olympic boxing history. Which, which um, says a lot, given the history. It says a great deal, considering how many bad things there are. And there were a couple other decisions somewhat like that. One went against a Korean, and he staged a protest sitting in the ring for about an hour before they finally convinced him to leave the ring. But that stuff happens. They There's a thing very few people know about at the Olympic boxing tournament. They give out a thing called the Val Parker Trophy. And Val Parker was a boxing administrator back in the 50s and 60s from Great Britain. And the Val Parker Trophy is supposed to be given out to the best boxer at the Olympics in any weight class. They can pick anybody. Well, they gave the Val Parker Trophy to Roy Jones because they had to give him something after stealing the gold medal from him. But, yeah, it was uh, not not a great decision and terrible for Roy Jones. You mentioned that you were in residency during this time. Were you able to watch much of these games? By 88, I was pretty far along in residency. And yeah, I, I watched some of them when I was home and not on call. By then, I was only on call about every fourth night. Back For 84 in Los Angeles, I was on call every other night. So it was really hard for me to watch Los Angeles, although I'd been to the Olympic trials that year. But yeah, I saw a lot of them. What were some of your favorite moments? Or most memorable moments? My favorite moment was probably watching Greg Luganis, you know, win his gold medals again in both the springboard and platform, which he did. And that was also one of the more dramatic events of the games. You know, Greg Luganis, most people consider the greatest male diver of all time. He won gold medals in 1984 in both springboard, springboard and platform. In 1980, the U.S. boycotted. And at that time in 1980, Luganis had not been defeated in a diving competition in like three years. He'd won a silver medal at the 76 Olympics on platform. And so, you know, everyone was expecting him to win and uh, he came through. But what was dramatic about it was on the springboard in qualifying on his next to last dive in qualifying, he actually hit his head on the edge of the springboard. As he came down, you know, his head's kind of scraped the springboard. And you can see he's getting thrown off. And he had a very poor finish. He got a very low score on that dive, but he was he was so far ahead by then he qualified easily anyway. And the U.S. doctor actually had to sew him up before he took his next dive, which he did. And he finished the last dive. He did well. And the next day in the finals, he won the gold medal in that. And then a few days later, he won the platform gold medal again. So you know, he won four gold medals in a row there in diving. And if it wasn't for the 1980 boycott, he would have won six almost certainly. But the, the thing that was revealed later was at the time of the Seoul Olympics, and it was not announced at that time, and he, the doctor and the other athletes didn't know, Greg Luganis was HIV positive. Luganus later came out as gay, although I think everyone knew he was at that time anyway. But when you think about it, the doctor, I remember the pictures, was sewing him up. And I don't think he had gloves on, which is unusual for a U.S. doctor not to wear gloves when they're sewing up someone. But, you know, he's exposed to the virus and the blood and the, the blood was theoretically in the pool water for the other divers. So as I recall, Lewis's coach did know that he was HIV positive at the time. 
but Luganus had not revealed that to anyone else. But an amazing comeback for him to win the gold medal. I can't downplay what AIDS and HIV were in 1988. The terror that people felt about it at the time and not revealing it was... Yeah, Allison, that's a great point. You know, I stopped practicing in 2014 clinically. I've been the editor of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery for 15 years, which was my subspecialty. But a friend of mine and I did a couple things on Twitter where during the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, and we said, hey, listen, in the 80s, we were way more scared of HIV because it was a death sentence in 1988. If you got HIV, you were going to die. Really, the first prominent person I heard about getting it and you know living a long time, and he's still alive and doing well, is Magic Johnson. Until Magic Johnson came along, everybody was dying from it, and we were scared to death to get stuck. In fact, there was a very prominent orthopedic surgeon in San Francisco, a woman, a female orthopedic surgeon there, who stopped practicing. She was so scared of it. She refused to expose herself. Now, San Francisco, with its larger gay population, might have been you know, a much higher risk out there than Durham, North Carolina, where I was. But we were all scared of it. So, yeah, what, what Luganus did, not revealing he was positive, was a little foolhardy, actually. But on the other hand how he came back and won the gold medal was also pretty amazing. I just remember that video so clearly and hearing that thunk when he hits his head and and how that has to be, even separate from the HIV, which we learned later, that has to be every diver's nightmare to hit their head like that. Well, you know, my father, my father was a pretty good diver when he was young. He wasn't like national caliber, but he was fairly good. And he told me, that one of the things they used to do in practice was try to come as close to the springboard as they could when they came down. That was the better dive. Instead of diving way out into the pool, you wanted to go straight up and come straight down. And my dad said he actually did hit his head one time a little bit. There was also a Soviet diver who competed in 1983 named Sergei Chalibashvili, who was on the platform and hit his head doing a dive that was so difficult, they called it the dive of death. And unfortunately, that became a reality. Shally Boshvili hit his head hard enough, he died from hitting his head. Now, that's on the platform. That's a lot harder than the springboard. But not that hitting the springboard isn't still bad. The dive of death was so hard, the only diver that successfully was able to do it very often was Luganus back then. A lot of the male Chinese divers in the next few years were able to do it, but bad thing. So happier note, what else? What else do you remember with joy? Well, a guy who's not remembered very much that should be is a guy named Matt Biondi in swimming. You know, everybody talks about Michael Phelps and how incredible he was. And everybody seems to remember Mark Spitz in 1972, winning seven gold medals and seven events with seven world records. And he did. But everybody seems to forget Matt Biondi. In 1988 at Seoul, Biondi competed in seven events and won five gold medals and seven medals. So, you know, he had an amazing games himself, and he was mostly a sprinter. He won gold in both the 50 and 100-meter freestyles and uh, then a bunch of medals or gold medals in relays with the U.S. and a silver medal in the 100 butterfly. He's kind of forgotten. There was another swimmer at the... 88 Olympics, that's also not as well remembered, and there's a reason for that probably, named Kristen Otto. Kristen Otto was from East Germany, or what they prefer to be called the German Democratic Republic. 
Cristinato entered six events at the Seoul Olympics and won six gold medals. And that's an all-time record for women at a single Olympic Games for most medals won. And it's only been surpassed by men, by Spitz and Phelps. So that was an amazing thing that Otto did. Now, the problem is that, again, Otto was from East Germany and the German Democratic Republic. And it was later, after reunification with West Germany, it was later revealed that most of the East German athletes were on huge doping regimens and taking all sorts of drugs, especially their women. And we even have records of it because there were lawsuits and discovery and things like that. There was an East German police organization called the Stasi, and the records of the Stasi came out that show what the athletes were taking, who was taking what, so we know what they were taking. And, and Otto was definitely on all sorts of steroids at that time. Again, the East German sports program was so well designed to avoid their athletes testing positive. You, you might not know this, but no East German athlete ever tested positive in an international competition in the history of East Germany because they would always test their athletes back home before they sent them to the games. If they were positive, they didn't send them, you know, so they always were negative at the games. But Otto was on all sorts of things. So even though she did an amazing thing in swimming, it comes with a big caveat. Are those records asterisked in the books? No, they're not. And that discussion's come up multiple times. The answer from the IOC, and again, I keep bringing up Dick Pound because he was such a prominent member of the IOC, and I know Dick pretty well, so he's probably the most prominent member of the IOC ever who wasn't elected president. But Dick said, look, it's past the statute of limitations now. We can't go back and do that and reverse it. However, you may have heard this summer the IOC reversed itself on Jim Thorpe and declared him as the sole gold medalist in both the 1912 pentathlon and decathlon. So they, they did reverse themselves in that regard. And there's another example. This is very obscure. 1952 boxing, they actually didn't give bronze medals. They gave a gold and silver to the boxers and the losing semifinalists, they gave no medals. And that was reversed in 1969. 17 years later, those athletes got their bronze medals. So there is precedent for going back many years to change things. And certainly a lot of the swimmers, the, the biggest voice on this was always an American swimmer from the 70s named Shirley Babishoff, who won multiple medals in 76 and was the best swimmer in the world outside of East Germany. But what she won was silver medals all the time individually because she kept getting beaten by an East Germany. She won one gold medal in a relay. And Babishoff was a big voice to try and, you know, get the East Germans disqualified. But it, that has not happened. There's no asterisk. They're still listed as the champions or whatever medal they won. Was there any inkling that the Iron Curtain was going to fall within the next year or two or three? Well, I am not a politician. In fact, I hate politics. I'm 70 years old now. So I was either nine or 10 when the Berlin Wall went up in 61 or so. I'm not sure exactly what year it was. I never thought I'd see a reunified Germany in my lifetime. I remember watching, I, I remember exactly where I was. It's kind of like, you know, where you were when Kennedy was shot or when the Challenger exploded. I remember exactly where I was watching on TV, seeing seeing them knock down chunk all the citizens taking sledgehammers to the Berlin Wall. I'm like, I, I can't believe this is happening. So at least to me, there was no inkling that that was going to occur. Somebody who's well-versed in politics may have had some inkling that 
Reagan and Gorbachev were doing glasnost and perestroika and all that, but it, it amazed me when it happened. I don't know about you guys, but oh yeah, it was it was really surprising. I say like we were were you out of high school, Allison? Uh, I was still in high school. No, I was in college. I was sort of in that you know depending on which part of that story yeah, we're yeah. talking about. It was the transition. Yeah, well, I, I got out of college in 73, so I'm a little older than you guys. <laughs> But we were the, it's funny that you mentioned Matt Biondi, because I'm laughing to myself, because Jill and I were the perfect age to absolutely remember Matt Biondi. Yes. And why yeah. isn't he remembered? Is it because those games were in Asia and the, the time difference? Or one would think that he'd get the same kind of accolades. Well, a couple things. There was no internet. There weren't even very many computers in 88. I had one, but not everybody had computers like they have now. Also, Matt Biondi was kind of a quiet guy. He, he didn't seek out publicity. You know, Mark Spitz, I wouldn't say Spitz was a publicity seeker, but when he did so well in at 72 in Munich, he and he got into those games saying, I'm going to win seven gold medals, and he did it. And um, Biondi didn't do that, but he still had an amazing Olympics. And, you know, I think because he's so quiet, there, there wasn't as much media attention in those days on the swimmers maybe, but he should be remembered, I think. Uh, you know, there's one other thing that I should mention about Seoul, 88, that we didn't we didn't mention. There was a boycott in 88, too. You know, there was the boycott in 80 in Moscow where the U.S. didn't go and they pers- persuaded a bunch of their friendly nations that are friendly to the U.S. not to go. And actually, about 60 nations did not compete in Moscow. And then in 84, the Soviet Union did not go and they persuaded all the Soviet bloc countries and nations friendly to the Soviets like Cuba not to go. So that, that was about, there were about 17 nations in compete in 84, but there was a boycott in 88. It was the same thing that we talked about earlier with North Korea. A lot of countries didn't recognize South Korea politically. The Soviet Union did not recognize South Korea. Now the Soviet Union would never not compete in the Olympics unless it was in the U.S., but North Korea did not compete. Cuba did not compete. Ethiopia did not compete. There were actually six nations that are listed as boycotting. Whether or not they did is always hard to say because they just say we didn't, we didn't attend. But it did. And again, I'm, I'm talking about Dick Pound the whole time here, but led to Dick Pound's greatest line ever. Because one of the nations that did not compete and was considered to boycott was the Seychelles you know, which is a small island off the coast of Africa. And Dick Pound, when he heard about that, said, the Seychelles? Hell, it's only an island at low tide anyway. We are fans of Dick Pound going rogue. So you can talk about Dick Pound to us anytime you want to. Yeah, I I love Dick. And uh, it's too bad he he wasn't IOC president. He wasn't IOC president because Samaraj kept giving him jobs to do to sort of police the IOC. And he ended up pissing off too many members of the IOC, so they wouldn't vote for him, but he should have been president. What's the legacy of, of Seoul 1988? Well, it, it did a couple things. It reversed the major boycotts of 80 and 84, and even in 76, there had been a boycott in Montreal of African nations because of New Zealand competing in South Africa in rugby, which was not an Olympic sport at the time. And it really brought all the world together for the first time at the Olympics since 1972 in Munich. That's a long time. That's 16 years. And it, the legacy also sort of, just as Tokyo did in 1964, brought Japan onto the world stage. 
it sort of brought Korea onto the world stage. People heard about it and they realized, hey, this is a country that, you know, until recently had a dictatorship. It's now become much more democratic. And it's, again, part of the Asian economic miracle of the 80s that was occurring and was becoming a prominent. I mean, look at the stuff we do now. I mean, Samsung and all sorts of cars and everything else from Korea. But it made the country prominent and put them on the world stage. So I think those are the two biggest legacies of the games. We would have no K-pop and no K-beauty. That's right. <laughs> I used to be able to do that K-pop dance. I did. I remember doing it in London 2012 when it first came out. <laughs> If you could go there and be at, at Korea in 1988, what would you have wanted to see? Well, my favorite sport to watch at the Olympics is always track cycling, which always gets a, a reaction like Allison just did when she says, really? Why track cycling? Well, I, I got interested in the Olympics because of cycling. I mentioned my father had been a diver, but he was just sort of an amateur diver. My, my father was a national caliber cyclist and speed skater. And I actually was a competitive cyclist very briefly in my youth. And uh, track cycling is fascinating to watch. It's actually so much better to watch than road cycling because everything's right in front of you in this little enclosed track and you can see everything and it's so fast. And for the NASCAR's fans, there's lots of accidents and crashes and things like that. So, you know, people like that. But it's a great sport. So I definitely would have watched track cycling. I probably would have gone to watch tennis. I, I love watching tennis. My favorite athlete in the world right now, and probably my favorite athlete of all time, is, is Rafael Nadal. And I got to see him in Rio in 2016. He wasn't playing in 88, of course, but you know I could have gone to see, uh, I think Chris Everett played in 88, so maybe I could have. Although I'd seen Chris Everett play back Wasn't in the 70s. Didn't Steffi Graf win the goal? Steffi Graf won, and it was part of what's called the Golden Slam. She won the Grand Slam of tennis that year, Wimbledon, Australia, French, and the U.S. Open, and won the gold medal at the Olympics. That's the only time that's ever been done in singles to win the Golden Slam. Well, that will do it, Bill. Thank you so much. Okay, I hope that was Uh okay. Thank you so much, Bill. ISOH publishes the Journal of Olympic History, and you can find out more about that at isoh.org. Welcome to Shukfastan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests of the show who make up our country of Shukfastan. Let's look at some results from the end of last year. Nordic combined athlete Annika Malasinski competed at two World Cups in Ramsau, Austria. In the first race, she finished 20th. In the second, she finished 21st. And she walked away from the weekend with some World Cup points, which helps with overall season rankings. This weekend, she will be competing in Otepa, Estonia. And this weekend is a double dose of speed skating. We've got the U.S. championships in both long track and Short track, which means Ryan Shane will be competing at the short track in Utah and Aaron Jackson will be competing at the long track in Milwaukee. If you want to watch any of these, you can look on our Facebook group because listeners are really good about finding where to take a look at these events. In other news from Shuklastan, bobsledder Josh Williamson has been out with a groin injury. So get well sued, Josh. We hope to see you on the track soon. Claire Egan has been named an athlete ambassador for the Lake Placid 2023 FISU World University Games. 
So exciting. Congratulations to Olya Abasolo of Chinikova, who is starting a new job as Senior Athlete Communications and Digital Activation Manager at the International Olympic Committee. So we have a Shuklistan on the inside. Well, actually, we have several Shuklistanis on the inside now. But I, I think. think Olya will will give us some inside scoop. <laughs> and beach volleyball player Kelly Chang was named AVP's 2022 Offensive Player of the Year and MVP. Before we leave Shuklistan, we do have an announcement. Yes. We've got an official animal. That's right. That's right. That's right. You all voted. We are looking for our official symbols for Shuklistan. And the flower that you chose for us is the flame lily. And now we have our mascot. Our official animal is the fox. I'm excited to see what we can do with that. I know because now we've got to come up with a name for this fox. It it is a traditional symbol of fire in in many cultures, which which is why. And people liked it. It beat out the firefly and the salamander. I voted for the firefly because I thought that was awesome. But it is the fox, and I'm going to take it as a compliment of us. That is very true. <laughs> and <laughs> I will also I will also take that as a compliment. That's great. So, well, we need a name for it. So if you have ideas, let us know. You can ping us at flamealifepod at gmail.com or go on the Facebook group because we will start another discussion there. So I will take you back okay. to a little conversation I had in Beijing with okay. my friends from Paris 2024 <laughs> that I met on the mountain and who saved my life. So I can't complain. But they promised me that transportation in Paris 2024 would be better than Beijing. However, they're having some problems with that. <laughs> oh. Promises, promises. So Inside the Games is reporting that Paris 2024 cannot find any company who is willing to run their transportation system. So they are launching a second call for bids to run operations. And this is the transportation of athletes and accredited personnel that we're looking at. So it would be media gets toted around, but but athlete transportation is huge because how else are they going to get to their events efficiently? The sad thing is, Nobody bid the first time around. Within the call for bids, there is a huge penalty if things get screwed up. So nobody wants to deal with that. Oh. Huge penalties. And it is an extremely complicated system. A lot of things can go wrong. And you don't want to get yelled at. Right. And if there are huge penalties, if there's a huge stick and you know that every, I mean, you can go back and look at every game and something goes wrong. And and there are a lot of things that are just like, oh, the first time it happens, we find the problem that we never thought of. And a lot of stuff gets ironed out. But some basic overall structure stuff, if that goes wrong, then it's just, it's just a rough time. But I, I can totally see a, oh, we're going to have to pay fines or have another penalty if we mess something up. What what does that mean? So I, I can, uh, maybe they have to revamp their bid. We'll see. We may be walking. Wow, that, that might from, be okay. Le- from Paris to Lille <laughs> to Tahiti, we'll be Just, walking thumb, and swimming. Can you still, can you still hitchhike in, in Europe safely? <laughs> we'll find out.
This is kind of exciting. Team Ireland is looking for a couple of volunteers for Paris 2024. They are looking for two volunteers to be appointed to Team Ireland as NOC assistants for the duration of the Olympics. And they will be based with the team in Paris throughout the games in 2024. And there's going to be a couple of events in the lead up to the games as well that they'll be involved in. What they're looking for are people who can do administrative, linguistic and operational support. And it's a separate application from that, which is the Paris 2024 volunteer application. But you'll be part of that volunteer network that's going to be operated by the Paris 2024 organizing committee there. But the application is on Team Ireland's website and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. We don't have sounders for these. Oh, yeah. So project for 2023 for us is getting sounds for the Winter Olympics 2030 and Brisbane 2020 and Brisbane 2032, because we have news for both of those events. There's a new bid city for winter 2030. This is kind of exciting. Yeah. So 2030 has now become the Olympic football where cities are dropping out. We don't know if we're going to have host city. And now... Inside the Games and Games Bid are reporting that there is a push to put together a joint bid between Valley Switzerland, Chamonix, France, and the Aosta Valley of Italy. Hmm. So it's all one region in the Alps that all crosses each other. Sounds very cool. However, in the past, Swiss voters have rejected any attempts to make a bid. Which is always interesting that the home of the IOC headquarters does not want to host the games, although they did host the Youth Olympic Games, the the last winter edition. So there's some things that they're willing to do. But one would think that also spreading out the costs between three countries might be a little bit more palatable for the Swiss. And then you would have the Winter Olympics back in Chamonix, the birthplace of the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really cool. And it does push that whole idea of a regional Olympics to a new level because now you've got three countries involved. Right. And and the distance between them actually may not be that large. It's not. It's very small. It's a tight little region. If you look at it on a map, I don't know how easy it is to get around. That would probably be the biggest concern is transporta- transportation. Transportation around the the areas and you've got no big city Mm. which also could be a concern but on the flip side if you kind of spread it all around you can make a very interesting bit so we'll see what comes of this and maybe italy has another opportunity to spend money that they don't have i can see this going would they have existing venues i know but this here's a couple of things that this would mean this would mean we have no issue with sliding because it's San Moritz. Right. So you've got the sliding venue, which always seems to be the big question mark. Well, though, we Italy, will see. though Italy would then be back-to-back hosts. I know. So that's a question of, is that something that the IOC wants? Or is that not going to be a concern this time around? Because we would have back-to-back in Europe, back-to-back winter games in Europe, and the problem with having a 2028 and 2030 in the U.S., where Salt Lake is really the last bitter standing, is is sponsorship issues and and having two games in a row and and the support that you have to give two games. Could Italy pull together this for two 
games in a row. Because Salt Lake really does not want it in 2030. They really want it for 2034. As much as they say they are ready to go whenever the IOC needs them. So I will say this. They're very diplomatic about that. But you can you can see the kind of the issues in the background with, with how much money the games cost just in general and needing to find some financing for that. So will Italy, even though they would be like one third of the games, would that pose a problem for Italy in terms of having the money to do 2026 fully and part of 2030? Good can question. You, can you imagine the snacks on the media table at this thing? <laughs> oh, just don't expect a fondue pot. Okay. So Brisbane 2032 is also having some fun. This is interesting. So those of you who are our Aussie listeners, get ready for a change in broadcasters. Sydney Morning Herald reported that Channel 9 has outbid 7 for the rights to host Brisbane 2032. Those two stations, they co-broadcast the games from Melbourne 1956. And since then, 7 has been the primary broadcaster. Channel 9 had Vancouver... 2010, London 2012, and 20 and Sochi 2014, but it's been pretty much seven all along. But now it's going back to nine, so that will be interesting to see what happens in terms of your hosts and your commentators. And they did not get the money. The IOC did not get the money they were hoping for out of this. No, they did not. And they were hoping for. Uh, Sydney Morning Herald said they were hoping for like 400 million for the Olympics because Paralympic rights are a separate discussion, and they got. Sources say they got between 200 and 250 million for this. That's Stuff's not going to buy you too many kangaroos. No, it will not. If you if you weren't looking for your personal kangaroo transportation, you will not find it. Oh, that wouldn't money. that be awesome? No, kangaroos are, can be mean. They look nice. They can be mean. But could you create like a little kangamobile? Where you sit in the pouch and it keeps you cozy. <laughs> Not a real kangaroo, but like a mechanical kangaroo. <laughs> and then you can hop it. If there's a lot of traffic, you hop over it. Could be cool. Could be very cool. I would go for that, man. <laughs> well, maybe you could bid for transportation rights. <laughs> could you see? I mean, for France, we just would have the baguette mobile. And it would be a long <laughs> Wait, French you could loaf. Just... You could just use the template of the, the Wienermobile, the Oscar Mayer hot dog mobile. I mean, that is very close to the shape of a baguette. You just paint it and make it Oscar Mayer and you'd be all set. <laughs> Super efficient transportation getting you around. That's what we're going to think it up. You know, they always talk about reusing and repurposing <laughs> for the Olympics. <laughs> the Oscar Mayer mobile is coming to France. I can just see the French people go, what is this thing? <laughs> Don't let her in. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, that will do it for this week. Let us know what you remember from Seoul, and we will share it in a future episode. You can get in touch with us by email at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And make your New Year's resolution to join our Facebook group. It is Keep the Flame Alive podcast group. Next week, we are continuing our historical groove by talking with Michael Payne, the first person to hold the position of director of marketing at the IOC. If you enjoyed last year's conversations with George Herthler and Terrence Burns, you are in for a treat with Michael. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, catch up while you're waiting. They are numbers 247, 257, and 258. 
Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.